Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. And we're going to read from verse 15 to verse 33. 15 to 33. Verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that you are true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for you regard not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes unto Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their wickedness and said, Why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a denarius. And he said unto them, Whose is the image and the subscription? They said unto him, Caesar's. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day came to him the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, died, and having no offspring, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed that you would love us, guilty sinners as we are, that you would send your Son into the world for our sakes. And Lord, we thank you for the coming of your Son Jesus and his life and his teachings and especially his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection and the hope that we have in him. Help us at this time, Lord, not only at this morning, but this Christmas season, to remember, Lord, that you sent your Son into the world because you love us and because we needed you and you met our need. Lord, open our understanding, open our hearts and our ears to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many of you have ever tried to trap or ensnare something? Usually an animal, right? How many of you have ever had um, the, the 
experience of trying to catch a mouse in your house. Have you ever done that? Anyone ever had mice in their house? I remember once in New Brunswick, first time I ever saw a mouse in our house, I was in my room with my friend, and it scared me for some reason. <laughs> Seeing the mouse walk by the door, just shocking. You don't expect it. But anyway, we caught it. You put a little peanut butter on the mouse trap, and the mouse goes for the peanut butter, eats it, snap, he's dead. <clears throat> Or uh, maybe more common than mice, uh, people go fishing. And when you fish, you want to trap or ensnare the animal that's swimming in the water. And you don't just throw a hook down there because animals don't typically just run into your traps, right? <laughs> the fish don't just say, hey, there's a hook. Okay, take me. <laughs> the mouse doesn't say a mouse trap. Okay, that's for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> you catch the fish by putting a bait on the hook. And you ensnare the animal by being sneaky and tricky and trying to suck the animal in. And he says, oh, this is going to be good for me. Bites, and then he's trapped, right? Uh, the street that I, lived, that I used to live on in New Brunswick was right next to woods as far as your eye could see. And um, an animal that we would often have trouble with on our street was uh, bears, Bears would come around. They liked the garbages, and sometimes you'd have a bear on your driveway or a bear looking through your living room window. And so if you had bear trouble, then they would ensnare the bear, and they would trap the bear. And so what they would do is the government or the, the forest rangers would come, and they would set up this kind of trailer that has a trap door, and they put some garbage inside the trailer, some tasty you know, garbage in there, and the bear would go in, and when he would touch the the garbage or the food, it would close the door on him and you'd wake up in the morning have a bear in your backyard trapped in a trailer. So we, we as people, we seek to ensnare and we do trap animals. Now I want to read to you, and you can turn there if you'd like and follow along. Um, in Job chapter 40, God describes an animal that can't be ensnared. Job chapter 40. I'm going to read out of the Living Bible, but you, you should be able to follow along if you'd like, or you can just listen. You've probably heard of the Leviathan before, right? An animal that can't be ensnared. And listen to how God, because God is the speaker, listen to how he describes this animal. Some kind of massive dragon. Can you catch Leviathan with a hook and line? Or put a noose around his tongue? Can you tie him with a rope through the nose? Or pierce his jaw with a spike? Will he beg you to desist? Or try to flatter you from your intentions? Will he agree to let you make him your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird? Or give him to your little girls to play with? Do fishing partners sell him to the fishmongers? Will his hide be hurt by darts or his head with a harpoon? If you lay your hands upon him, you will long remember the battle that ensues, and you will never try it again. No, it's useless to try to capture him. It is frightening even to think about it. No one dares to stir him up, let alone try to conquer him. And if no one can stand before him, who can stand before me? I owe no one anything. Everything under the heaven is mine. I should mention, too, the tremendous strength in his limbs and throughout his enormous frame. Who can penetrate his hide? Or who dares come within the reach of his jaws? For his teeth are terrible. His overlapping scales are his pride, making a tight seal so no air can get between them and nothing can penetrate. When he sneezes, the sunlight sparkles like lightning across the vapor droplets. His eyes glow like sparks. 
Fire leaps from his mouth. Smoke flows from his nostrils like steam from a boiling pot that is fired by dry rushes. Yes, his breath would kindle coals. Flames leap from his mouth. The tremendous strength in his neck strikes terror wherever he goes. His flesh is hard and firm, not soft and fat. His heart is hard as rock, just like a millstone. When he stands up, the strongest are afraid. Terror grips them. No sword can stop him. No spear nor dart can, nor pointed shaft. Iron is nothing but straw to him. And brass is rotted wood. Arrows cannot make him flee. Slingstones are in, in as ineffective as straw. Clubs do no good. And he laughs at the javelins hurled at him. His belly is covered with scales as sharp as shards. He drags across the ground like a steamroller. He makes the water boil with his commotion. He churns the depths. He leaves a shining wake of froth behind him. One would think the sea was made of frost. There is nothing else so fearless anywhere on earth. Of all the beasts, he is the proudest monarch of all that he sees. That's the entire chapter. Job 41 is totally dedicated to the Leviathan, and not only to Leviathan and how you can't ensnare him, but how God, if God created Leviathan and you can't ensnare God or the Leviathan, how much more powerful and mighty and indestructible is God, the creator of all things. So without leaving that image, I want you to consider verse 15 without leaving that image. The Pharisees take counsel how they might entangle, or the Greek word is ensnare or trap, just like you would trap an animal. They want to trap Jesus in his talk. And brothers and sisters, trying to catch Jesus in his words is like trying to catch Leviathan with a fishhook or a harpoon. It's impossible. You can't do it. Can you imagine trying to fool wisdom? Trying to catch the word of God in his words? Trying to bluff God? You approach Jesus in hypocrisy and you try to play a trick on him so that by his words he condemns himself or catches himself? It's like trying to catch Leviathan. It doesn't work. He's impenetrable. He's God. In Psalm chapter 2, God looks at the nations and he says, why do the nations take counsel against God? Why do they say, let's throw God off from us. Let's figure out how we can do this. It says in Psalm 2 that he who sits in the heavens laughs and will have them in derision. And so we see that every attempt here to confound Christ or to catch the word, the wisdom of God, the word of God, by his word, by his words, always backfires on them. And the people end up marveling at Christ. And those who sought to ensnare him look foolish. We see the impossibility of outwitting wisdom. Doesn't work. Now in this, the rest of this chapter that we're going to look at, there are three attempts to do this. Three attempts to catch Jesus in his words. The first is by the Herodians the second by the Sadducees, and the last by the Pharisees. And each one of these different groups comes to Jesus to catch him with their own specialty, you know, their, their own sort of um, expertise. And they come to trick Jesus, and they come to stump him 
and to make him look bad so they can dispose of him. This morning we're going to look at the first two attempts by the Herodians and by the Pharisees. The first attempt in verse 16. The Pharisees sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. Now the Herodians were a political party in Israel. So they weren't really a religious group at all. They were a political party, and you probably recognize the name Herod. Herod uh, was the king over Israel. Herod the Great, the one who killed the babies at Bethlehem. But when he died, the Romans came in and set up uh, men like Pilate and proconsuls, Roman proconsuls. But they still let the Herodian, Herod's sons, the Herodians, have certain jurisdictions in certain parts of Israel. And the Herodian party were those in Israel who supported the rule of the Herodian family. They would have liked to have seen uh, Herod's son rule over all of Israel. Herod owed his power to Rome. And so the Herodians were sympathetic to Rome. They worked together with Rome. And for that reason, they weren't popular with the Jews. The Herods themselves are only half Jews. And so they, they were seen as outsiders, foreigners, and collaborators with the enemy. But yet there was this party who supported them. And so it's strange to see the Pharisees and the Herodians working together. And like we've pointed out before, groups that would normally have nothing to do with each other are united against Jesus. The Pharisees didn't like the Herodians, and the Herodians didn't like the Pharisees. But they both thought it would be good to get rid of Jesus. One perhaps for religious reasons and one for political. But they were both against him. And so they come to him in verse 16 and listen to their words. Master... Now, they're coming to destroy him. They want to see him dead. But listen how their words don't, don't seem to indicate that at all. Master, we know that you are true. Well, if that's the case, why are you trying to destroy him? And you teach the way of God in truth. And you don't care for any man, for you regard not the person of men. Doesn't mean he doesn't care for people, but he's not afraid of men. He's not afraid to say things like they are. And he doesn't show any partiality. So they come to Jesus with lying flattery. J.C. Ryle says this about flattery. We mistake greatly if we suppose that persecution and hardship are the only weapons in Satan's armory. That crafty foe has other engines for doing us mischief, which he knows well how to work. He knows how to poison souls by the world's seductive kindness when he cannot frighten them by the fiery dart of the sword. Let us not be ignorant of his devices. Satan is never so dangerous as when he appears as an angel of light. The world is never so dangerous to the Christian as when it smiles. If you only think that the devil's tactics and the devil's attacks against you are in that he comes against you in hostility, you're wrong. He comes against you with a friendly smile. He sends his teachers, and he sends his disciples to you with a friendly smile. He says, we know that you guys are teaching the truth. We, we, we love the Bible. We love Jesus too. The world is never so dangerous to the Christian as when it smiles. Satan's most deadly tactic is when he comes to us friendly and religious, right? And we need to be aware and see their motives and see what their words really mean. And yet at the same time, we have here a true picture of Jesus as is given by his enemies. 
He was true. He didn't care uh, about what men thought. He wasn't afraid of men. And he did teach the way of God in truth. Such was the popular reputation of Jesus. He was teaching the way of God in truth. Jesus was teaching us how to be right with God. Jesus' message was that you have to be righteous in order to enter the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees aren't righteous. He's teaching the way of God in truth. So why do they come to him and say it this way? Why don't they just approach him and say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Which is what their question is. They're saying this because they're about to ask him that question. And they want to soften him up. They want to gain his trust. They want him to answer them openly. They don't want him to be on their guard because they know this is a very dangerous question. Master, you teach the truth, so tell us the truth. Don't give us an evasive answer. Master, you teach the way of God and truth, and you don't care about anybody. You don't care about the Romans. You don't care about the Herodians. You don't care about the Pharisees. So tell us. And we're on your side. We're not going to harm you. They want to gain his trust, and they want him to answer it honestly because they believe this question is going to get Jesus into trouble. A.B. Bruce says, the compliment that they give him, besides being treacherous, was insulting, implying that Jesus was a reckless simpleton who would give himself away as such, and a vain man who could be flattered. Jesus was neither of those. Jesus wasn't a simpleton. He knew exactly what they were doing, and Jesus could not be bought with flattery. He didn't care about flattery, did he? Isn't it amazing? Jesus is different than us, isn't he? He had no pride in him. He had no uh, weakness to flattery like we do. So they thought he was a simpleton. They were wrong. And so in verse 17, they come out with their dangerous question. Tell us, therefore, since you're the teacher of truth and you don't care about what people think, tell us, therefore, is it lawful to give taxes unto Caesar or not? Now obviously, lawful, their question is, is it lawful according to the law of Moses? It was obviously lawful according to Roman law. If you didn't give taxes, if you didn't pay your taxes, you'd be punished. The question is, are we being disloyal to God by paying taxes to the Romans? A hot question. You see, not many years before, in 6 AD, there was a revolt in Israel over this very issue. In fact, the book of Acts even mentions this revolt and the man. Judas of Galilee was the man who led the revolt. And he was actually the, basically the father of the zealots. And the zealots figured, it is not loyal to God to be loyal to the Romans. You have to, make, you have to choose sides. You're either going to so you're going to serve God and submit to him as your Lord, or you're going to serve the Romans and submit to them as your masters. Their motto was, we have no Lord or master but God, and they accused anyone who paid tithes to the Romans to be cowards. They figured, yeah, if we're going to die for it, we're going to die for it. And they felt that they were doing right by revolting against this specific issue of paying taxes and having the Romans over them. Paying taxes was a sign that the Romans were your masters. 
The Pharisees were sympathetic to the Zealots, and the people were sympathetic to the Zealots, even if they didn't go along with them. They knew it was fruitless to resist, and so they gave their tithes begrudgingly. They debated about it. They talked about it. They said it was a necessary evil, but they were sympathetic to the Zealots, yet they all thought when Messiah comes, the, the issue will be settled. When the Messiah comes, he'll answer. He'll tell us what to do. He'll lead us in the right way. And so here's Jesus, who's just rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, and he's just proclaimed himself to be the son of David, and he's just cleansed the temple, and he tells, and when they say, tell the children to stop calling you the son of David, he says, no, God's perfected praise. They understand the implications of what Jesus is doing, and so they come to him. When Messiah comes, he'll settle the issue. You claim to be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to save us from the Romans when he comes, obviously. So tell us, Jesus, is it lawful? Should we be paying taxes to Caesar? They expected him to say no. But they didn't believe he was the Messiah, so they figured, hey, this is a good way for him to get killed. It's really a trick question. Of course, if, they say, if he said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, they still win because the people won't think he's the Messiah anymore. The people will turn on him. But if he says no, then they, send the, then they just call the Romans on the phone and say, hey, we got a, an instigator here. <laughs> We've got another Judas of Galilee, and he's popular, and we can take him out. In fact, this is one of the accusations they do give. If you read in Luke, the Gospel of Luke records, they actually tell Pilate that he was instigating people not to pay taxes. Of course, it was a false witness. So they wanted him dead, and this was their way to do it. Now Jesus obviously sees right through their hypocrisy in verse 18. He sees that they're wicked. He sees that they're hypocrites, that they're phonies. In Luke, it actually says that they pretended they were just men. They pretended they were righteous. And he says, why are you tempting me? Why are you trying to catch me in my words, you hypocrites? You don't think, you don't think highly of me. You're trying to kill me. Show me the, show me the money. <laughs> find me a denarius <laughs> get me a denarius and so they pull out a denarius which is the money that they would pay to the Romans and he says and he asks them whose is the image and whose is the inscription on it and Jesus draws a conclusion from the image and the inscription on the coin if you notice in verse 21 he says render therefore and his conclusion is brilliant. From the image in the inscription, he draws this conclusion. Now, it was a general principle among the Jews that whoever, whoever's coins you used, they were the ones who were ruling over you. And that's obvious. That wasn't a surprise. But whoever's coins you were using and whoever's image was on it in the inscription, they were your rulers. So Jesus points this out. They're your rulers, aren't they? And he shows them what they're missing. Caesar rules you. Caesar governs you. Caesar is doing you service. Therefore, you owe him. It's really that simple. Paying taxes to Caesar is not you giving him money that he doesn't deserve. Paying taxes to Caesar is not, you, is not him taking away your money unlawfully. He is your ruler. He's providing you with the benefits of a government. And you owe him the money. It 
actually belongs to him. Which is why Jesus, or the Apostle Matthew, the word render here in the Greek is actually give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. So he's literally telling them, the money doesn't belong to you. The money actually belongs to Caesar. So by giving it to him, you're not sinning. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything unlawful. You're giving him what is his due. You're not, it's not your money. And in fact, if you don't pay taxes to Caesar, you're stealing from Caesar. At the same time, God rules over you. God governs you. God takes care of you. And as your God, and as your creator, and as your sustainer, you owe him something too. And if you don't give it to God, thanks, respect, glory, love, and obedience, which he deserves, then you're actually sinning against God to not give God what is God's. This is the this is what sin is all about. God created us. God made us. God sustains us. God cares for us. Everything we have comes from God. And for a man to not glorify God and acknowledge God and to worship God and to love God and to obey God, that is sin. And the word debt is an appropriate one that the Bible uses. You owe God and you're not giving it to him. And therefore you're in trouble with God for sinning against him. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's right for you to do that. And give to God what belongs to God. Jesus turns the zealots' thinking on its head. The zealots thought you were not loyal to God if you paid taxes. Jesus explicitly tells us here that is false. In fact, it's disloyal to God not to pay taxes. It's disloyal to God not to pay taxes. God tells you to love your neighbor. God tells you not to steal. And by not paying taxes, you're not loving your neighbor, and you're stealing. The apostles' teaching in the New Testament is, finds its basis here in this saying of Jesus. In Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul says, God is the one who sets up governors over us. God is the one who sets up rulers over us. And therefore, to resist the government is to resist God himself. And Paul says, pay therefore your tithes, pay your taxes, give honor to those to whom honor is due, give fear to those to whom fear is due. Don't just do it because they'll punish you. Do it for conscience sake because it's right. They, it's theirs. It's what belongs to them. It's what is Caesar's. And so therefore, give it to him. Because God has put them over you. God has put the Romans over you. Don't resist the ordinance of God. I want to say two things Jesus is not saying here. Two things he's not doing here when he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He's not saying there's a division between sacred and secular. He's not saying money has no place in the spiritual realm. Sometimes people will take this saying, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's, give to God's what's God's, and that means money really has nothing to do with God. Right? Give God your spiritual stuff, and the money is not even spiritual, so don't worry about it. He's not saying that. But he is showing that there's a place money has in the world of God. There's a place money has in serving God. 
because God has put these rulers over you, and therefore it is sacred to pay your taxes. It belongs to him. The other thing that Jesus is not doing is he's not dismissing the kingdom aspirations of the Jews. Okay? We might think from this saying, man, he's totally ignoring the fact that the Romans are ruling over Israel, and that's not according to the promises of God, right? The promise of God to Israel by, uh, through Moses and, and through to Abraham was that if, God, if Israel, well, through Moses, if they obey him, then they'll dwell safely in the land forever, and they'll not have any oppressors rule over them. Of course, the promise of God to Abraham was unconditional, that they will dwell in the land safely and have no oppressors rule over them. And Jesus is not saying here in this text, guys, stop looking for the promises of God. Just get over it, all right? The Romans are ruling over you, and that's just fine. <laughs> so just pay them their taxes, and that's just the way it is, and get over this idea that it's important that God fulfills his promise, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying here. And you could, you could misunderstand him. Because the zealot's desire was to see God's promise fulfilled. But here's what Jesus is saying. The way to being blessed by God and the way to having the promises fulfilled is not by rebelling against the Romans, but it's by giving to God what is God's, is by righteousness, not rebellion. You want the Romans to go away? It doesn't, they don't just go away by you not paying taxes and fighting them and stabbing them. You want the Romans to go away? You give to God what is God's. You give to God what he's looking for, righteousness, and he will take care of who rules over you. Isn't that how it works in the Old Testament? They sin and he sends oppressors. They turn to God, he sends them away. The people were f forgetting that. And they were thinking that we have to get rid of the Romans instead of God. Jesus is changing their perspective. You don't seek the blessing you don't seek the kingdom apart from righteousness. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else will be added unto you. You see what Jesus is saying? Caesar's ruling over you right now, guys. God has it that way. They, they're not here randomly. It's not a mistake. God has them here. And now that they're here, they're governing you. You give them their taxes. It belongs to them. But give to God what is God's. You focus on giving God righteousness and he'll take care of the issue of the kingdom. Jesus did not, therefore, evade the question at all. He gave them a brilliant and full answer and they marveled and walked away. What do you do with that? You can't now go to Pilate and say, he's telling us not to pay taxes. He is. But you also can't go to the Jews and say, this guy doesn't care about the kingdom. He does. Jesus would probably argue they don't care about, the zealots don't care about the kingdom and the law and the teaching of righteousness. Second attempt. Verse 23, the same day, one of the busiest days of Jesus' life probably. The Sadducees now come. Now I don't think this time it was planned by the Pharisees because the Pharisees, the Pharisees wouldn't have probably sent the Sadducees with this kind of a question, because this was a contention between the two of them. So the Sadducees think, okay, we're going to take a stab at making Jesus look bad. 
we, they don't like Jesus either. No one likes Jesus when you're self-righteous and you don't care about righteousness. Nobody likes Jesus. Same thing today. Nobody likes the true Jesus today because if you don't care about righteousness, you won't like him. You'll try to create a, a phony Jesus or a fake one. What they wanted to show people here was that Jesus was inadequate as a teacher, just like the Pharisees. And they wanted to stump him, just like they stumped the Pharisees in the past. The Pharisees and the Sadducees argued a lot about resurrection and whether there really was a resurrection. And clearly, the Pharisees hadn't silenced the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came to Jesus with their baby, with their pet scenario to ridicule him, and to get points with the people. We always win with this one. The, Pharisees, or the Sadducees figured, we're gonna, with this argument, that they would show the people, as they have been, that we are more scriptural and more noble than the Pharisees, and even than Jesus. You see, we believe in the scripture. We believe in Moses and the Torah. And the Torah doesn't talk about resurrection. And we're also more noble because we believe in doing good without regard to the afterlife and what rewards you're going to get. We're just better generally all around. (laughs) Atheists are kind of like that. Self-righteous people too. Thinking that they're better because they don't care about heaven and hell. And yet they still do good. A famous Sadducean saying was, the cloud fails and passes away, so he that goes down to the grave does not return. So your life is like a cloud, and once it's gone, it's gone forever. The Sadducees had figured out an argument, or we might say more like a trick, against the belief in the resurrection. And here we learn a very important lesson about how false teachers work, and we do well to mark it. False teachers take a truth from the Bible, They take a verse from the Bible and they take it out of context and they don't think about it within the rest of Scripture and they twist it and they play little tricks with it like this one that we're going to see here. They're going to take a true verse from the Bible. They're going to take a a truth from the Bible and they're going to play a little trick with it. And false teachers today and all throughout the ages have done this and they like to challenge the traditional viewpoints by appealing to these scriptures that they take out of context. And they make little tricks with them. And so today, just as it was then, let's not be fooled by false teachers who come to us and say, hey, did you know the Bible says this? Well, if the Bible says this, and if you think about it like this, then what does that mean about that? Gotcha. And they're ignoring the whole Bible, and they're ignoring the whole teaching of scripture. Let's not be fooled today because it happens today, doesn't it? So what did they do? They took Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 to 6, which of course is the teaching that if a man dies without having any offspring, his brother's supposed to marry uh, his widow and um, raise up children for the brother. And so they said, well, interesting, that's, that's what Moses said. So let's make up a scenario and stump these guys who believe in resurrection. So they come up with this story, which you're probably familiar with. Seven brothers, not seven brides, one bride. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you know, the first brother dies, then the brother steps in to fulfill his responsibility. No children, he dies. The third one comes in. No children, he dies. The fourth one comes in all the way to the seventh. It's probably not a true story. It could be, but it's probably not. It's probably not true because the men probably would have stopped marrying her at three thinking she was cursed. <laughs> or maybe a murderer. 
A.B. Bruce says, one at first wonders that Jesus would even answer such triflers. <laughs> but he was willing to meekly instruct even the perverse, and he never forgot that there might be receptive and earnest people within hearing. Which explains why Jesus answered this silly scenario. It's, it's completely ridiculous. And yet they were doing it. Jesus, in verse 29, tells them what their problem is, and I think that this applies to all problems. If there's any error in our understanding of who God is and what he does and his word, it really comes down to these two things. Jesus says in verse 29, you are in error, you're wrong, and here's why. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That's what he tells them, right? All error comes back to that. You don't know the scriptures. You think you do and you don't. And you don't know the power of God. What does it mean to not know the power of God? It means this. You don't know what God is capable of doing. That's, that's a huge thing, as we're going to see here. Error comes because people don't think God's able to do that. They don't consider that God can do things that are supernatural or above and beyond what men might see and think is possible. They don't know the scriptures or what God is capable of doing, his power. Because the problem here is that the, Saris, the Sadducees, they couldn't see more in resurrection than a mere revival of the old order of things. So when the, when the Sadducees thought about resurrection, and I think it was probably the way the Pharisees thought of it too, in fact it was, the Pharisees taught that when the resurrection takes place, everyone's just brought back to life to the way things are. So, in the age to come, there's going to be marriage. In the age to come, there's going to be bathrooms. In the age to come, there's going to be food that you have to eat in order to survive, etc., etc., etc. Everything just kind of is restored to the way it was. Probably they thought like it was in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve could procreate, and Adam and Eve could eat, and they probably had to go to the bathroom, etc. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall. And so the Sadducees, if you think of it from this, in this way, and that resurrection is not a transformation of things, resurrection is not something new, but resurrection is kind of just something old, then this is actually a valid question, who's she going to be married to? Because if you're married in this life and you're resurrected and you're going to be married again in the next, you're probably going to be married to the one you were married to. And So she's been married seven times. Who's she going to be married to? Good question. But Jesus shows in verse 30 that they're not considering what God is capable of doing. They haven't considered the power of God. They haven't considered what the future looks like. And Jesus shows us that the future resurrection is not simply a revival of the old order of things, but it is something radically new. And I hope we get this in our heads as well, that we who believe in resurrection, and, and that literally means a physical resurrection of our bodies, it's going to be a physical resurrection to something new, and not to something as it was. The Apostle Paul also came to realize this through Revelation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he discusses the, the resurrection of the dead. How are the dead raised? And he talks about at length that it's sown an earthly body and it's sown a natural body, but it's raised a heavenly body and it's raised a spiritual body. It's raised different. Incorruptible. 
and different. He actually said, I don't know exactly how it's going to be raised, but it's going to be different. It's going to be other and supernatural. It's not a revival of the old. He got this from Jesus and from whatever revelation he got from God. And Jesus tells us something about that age. In verse 30, we're going to be like the angels in heaven. Jesus does not say we will be angels. In the Greek, it's literally of the manner, in the manner of the angels, in that angels don't marry and angels aren't given in marriage. So when we resurrect, the dead in Christ rise. There will no longer be marriage in heaven. Jesus explicitly refutes the idea of eternal marriage or that you'll be married to your spouse for time and eternity. That's perfectly clear here. And if someone argues, well, all Jesus means is that from that point on they won't marry anymore, but they'll still be married to whom they were married to, right? You ever heard that? So you're still going to be, you're going to be married, you just won't, there won't be any more marriage. But the old marriages will continue. The problem with that is that would not answer the Sadducees' question, right? <laughs> the Sadducees' question wasn't, will there be marriage in heaven? Who's, the Sadducees' question was, who's she going to be married to? She had seven. Jesus' point is that there will not be marriage between man and woman in heaven. But the Bible does talk about an eternal marriage, and that eternal marriage is the marriage between Christ and the church, God and his people. And that is the true substance of marriage. That is what marriage is all about. That is what our earthly marriages are simply reflections and shadows of. Marriage here is temporary, and it simply serves a point of illustrating that eternal union between God and his people, which we who have believed in Christ and have been saved from our sins and have been, become God's people, we will be forever the bride of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying there's not going to be any beautiful relationship in heaven. There's going to be the most beautiful relationship. It's going to eclipse all of the relationships you've ever seen. Could not be more clear here. So first, Jesus shows them what God is capable of doing. You don't know the power of God. Don't you know in the resurrection it's going to be different? God's going to change the whole order of things. And then he shows them the scriptures. In verse 31, almost insulting, have you not read? <laughs> well, of course they had read that. In fact, the Pharisees boasted of their knowledge of the Torah. Of course they had read it, but they had not read it with the eyes of understanding. And so here we learn a principle from Jesus about how we are to read the Bible. Right? Have you not read? Well, apparently they hadn't. These are the guys who had probably read this verse over and over and over and over again, and they'd never actually read it before. And we learn here about reading the Bible. It's not just about reading it, it's about understanding it. It's about reading with the right eyes. There are people who tell me a lot when I go up on campus. I say, you know, you really need to read 
uh, the New Testament or, G or the words of Jesus. You really need to read the book of Romans. And like, oh, I've read that before many times. And I want to say, no, you've never read it before. You really have never read it before. <laughs> right? According to Jesus, you've never read it before. Right? It's not just about reading it. It's about understanding. Remember hearing a story of a, of, of a Mormon man in his 40s who became a Christian. He had read the New Testament, he said, about 40 times. And he said, the night that I became a Christian, it was like scales fell off my eyes, and I, I read the New Testament that day for the first time in my life. Right? With an understanding, seeing what God is saying in the Scripture. So don't content yourself, even as Christians, that you've read the book of Philippians, or you've read the book of Exodus, or you've read the book of Psalms. Seek to understand. Jesus answers them from the Torah because that's where the Sadducees claimed the scripture was silent on resurrection. That's where they claimed that the decisive authority, where the decisive authority was. And it's important to see that Jesus does not simply argue from a proof text here or there. He doesn't say, well, you know, the Bible does talk about resurrection because, you know, Exodus verse 3, or chapter 3 verse 14 says this, and it, he doesn't just argue it from a proof text. Like we might as Christians, we might say, well, Jesus said that the poor man died and went to Abraham's bosom. Obviously, Abraham was there. He was having a conversation. Jesus gets into a concept that runs throughout the whole Bible. Don't miss this. He's not arguing a proof text. He's arguing from a concept that runs throughout the whole Bible. He gets into the bloodstream of Scripture. Verse 32. Haven't you read, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and here's the principle that runs through. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus doesn't appeal simply to the wording, but to the concept here. And he appeals to God's relation to his people. God's relation to his people. You see, for God to be the God of someone, or the God of something, that implies that he cares for, he rules over, he loves He's the God of. I will be their God and they will be my people is what God has said. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. That implies a living relationship, not a dead one. Ruling over the non-existent, caring for the non-existent, loving the non-existent. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or any of God's people that he was the God of no longer existed. It would be strange to say that I rule over the non-existent or care for, have a relationship with those who don't even exist anymore. And what we see here is that God, and Jesus is pointing this out, God did not mean, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now I've showed up to you, Moses. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That was me. Remember the God who was talking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That was me. I was their God. They don't exist anymore. Some relationship that would be if God is your God, 
Because he says, I'm the God of Abraham. If God is your God, and yet you end up dead and extinct. Guess what? God is your God. You're going to end up dead and extinct. And the curse will have consumed you and ruled over you. Why then have a relationship with God at all? Why then seek for God to be your God if you're just going to end up like everybody else? Dead and extinct. The only kind of relationship there is, brothers and sisters, is a living one. God meant, and Jesus is pointing this out, I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am forever in relationship with them. Floyd Filson rightly says, that man, ex- that man ceases to exist at death, or exists thereafter only as a helpless ghost, or lives on only in his descendants, is an impossible view for anyone who knows God's power. Or I would add, for anyone who knows God. Because God, when he becomes your God, brothers and sisters, when he can say, I am the God of Nathaniel, I am the God of Linda. When he becomes your God, his relationship with you is such, and his love for you is such, and as Philson pointed out, his power is such that he can resurrect you, and he can restore you, and he can reverse the curse, and he can bring blessing, and he can bring life, and because he loves you, he will do it. God in his love and in his power will not allow those whom he's the God of to cease to exist forever. Such is our God. And if you think God would do that, you don't really know him. When God becomes your God, brothers and sisters, not just your creator, but when he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, he's your God forever. And he saves you because he loves you. If God is your God, you have eternal life. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Isn't that amazing? God is not the God of the dead. So if he's your God, you are alive, and you will be forever. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? It has to do with his relation to his people. That's the kind of God he is. And the resurrection of Jesus gives us the historical confirmation of this spiritual truth that we can already acknowledge before we see his resurrection. Now we can say, well, look, Jesus resurrected. God raised him from the dead. We have historical confirmation. We have proof. We have evidence that God will restore us as well. But before Jesus rose from the dead, couldn't we have known that he wouldn't have let us die in our sins and perish and become non-existent forever as a result of the curse if he had brought us to himself and become our God. So ask yourself, is he your God today? And if he is, what does that mean for you? Does that mean you're going to go off into oblivion when you die? No. Because he loves you and he's able to save you to the uttermost. And what an awesome hope we have, therefore. When God is your God, nothing is impossible with him. You will live and not die. In closing, when the people heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. In another gospel, even the Pharisees were amazed, and they said, well said. You shut the Sadducees up once for all. 
course God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And if he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not going to abandon, abandon them. The multitude was astonished at his teaching, and so should we be. Because Christ's words that we read in the record left by his apostles, Christ's words are the words of wisdom, the words of truth, the way of God, and the way of life, the words of life. And we can't help see this when we read these stories, right? When you've got these smart Sadducees and these smart Pharisees and these smart Herodians and they come against Jesus or even not just in this chapter but everywhere before, every time we read the words of Jesus, we realize we are in the presence of a wisdom that cannot be resisted and cannot be ensnared. Do you, do you, do you get that when you read the words of Jesus? Does it ever just blow you away and you stop and think, man, what an answer. These are truly, no one ever spoke like this guy. His words are wise. His words are life. He is greater than we are. Any speech that any man would ever send against God or his Christ, like arrows or spears, are like we read in Job, iron and brass that becomes like straw and rotten wood. Jesus Christ is the monarch of all he sees. And he who sits in the heavens laughs at our puny attempts to overthrow God and his Christ with our foolish words and our foolish fleshly wisdom. Brothers and sisters, it's not for us to try to resist Christ, but to embrace him and listen to the wisdom and to the words of life that he gives for our sake. And isn't it amazing that this God who created the Leviathan wants to be our God? Isn't that amazing? And if you are a Christian, he's become your God. And you've become his people. And you will not ever die because he's taking care of you. Isn't it amazing that God has become your God or wants to become your God? Why would he want to do that? For us sinners who've not given him what is his, even though he created us, we ignore him, we're unthankful, we're sinful, we reject him, and he loves us, and he seeks us to be his bride. Isn't that amazing? And he knows what is needed, and he provides it in the person of his son, whom he sent to die on the cross for our sins, and to give us his righteousness, and so that we can be blameless and spotless before his presence. He who sits in the heavens laughs. But as the psalm ends, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we're so amazed at who you are. All of nature testifies of your wisdom and your might and your majesty. Lord, help us to see that we are total fools if we try to oppose you. And Lord, thank you that you came into the world to save even the most perverse, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the indifferent, that you died on the cross and shed your blood to make us all whiter than snow if we'd simply put our trust in you. Thank you for your amazing grace and for this time 
to read your word. Change us by it. May we be forever astonished at your teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.